Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the U3A radio podcast, which, as I mentioned last month, is now on various podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify and Google. I'm Nick Bailey, and this month we look ahead to our 40th anniversary celebrations. We have planned a number of activities, the first of which encouraging U3As to hold a picnic in the park on the 1st of June 2022. We keep fit with a gentler form of squash. The big difference with racquetball is the ball is a lot bouncier. Usually you're hitting the ball where it's somewhere between knee and shoulder height so you haven't got all that stretching and stooping into corners and getting down low it's much much kinder to joints and we have a heart-rending look back at the abavan disaster from the viewpoint of a congregational church minister and our main job for the rest of the week was interviewing families who wished their children to be buried in the, the communal grave But first, many U3As have become involved in shared learning projects where they combine with institutions such as universities. And one venture has just finished and looked at the health of the nation in 1901 through the eyes of the country's postal pensioners. They recruited amateur genealogists in U3As in Scotland, the south of England and Northern Ireland, where the coordinator was Peter Gibson from North Down and Ards. He explained to Joanne Watson more about the concept of shared learning and what they discovered in their researches. The shared learning is about sharing learning, obviously, amongst the members themselves. And also, uh, in this case, sharing it with the academic people who were running the project that we were helping them do a little bit of. There's this incredibly rich mine of information about the health of postal workers in those days because the post office kept such good records and it also had its own medical service and it had a very generous for the time pension scheme. There was a lot of information available for them to look and to understand the health of the country really in that time because the post office was a massive organization. It it employed up to I think 160 or 170,000 people you know, the same size as an army in peacetime. And also one fifth of its employees were women. So there's there's a whole widespread of the population. Now, I looked at the paper that you produced on your post office. It was 17 pages and obviously the census information and you've got maps and a, a photo of where he lived and some general genealogy background. It looks to me as if it was something that really captured your imagination. I was just very lucky with Malcolm McGee that there was so much information. At one stage, his house backed onto the playing fields of the primary school I went to. I mean, I'm quite an experienced family history researcher, so I I was able to help some of the others to find out more about their folk. It must have been great, though, that you could actually liaise with the people in Scotland and in England and, and find out what the situation was and how much it was parallel to your situation. Yes, I think that was one of the <laughs> one of the benefits of the pandemic in a way, because I think if this project had gone ahead in normal times, we would have had minimal contact with one another. Even in Northern Ireland, people were spread out across Northern Ireland. I know the Scottish people were spread all across Scotland, but we had we we had various Zoom meetings either as the Northern Ireland group, or we had wider sort of talks and meetings. That was part of the sharing as well. 
one of the members from from the southwest of England gave a talk on how to research newspapers. I think the, the, the level of contact was much higher and much better than it would have been if we hadn't been using Zoom. I read on the main website that more than half the workers retired through ill health. Now, I wouldn't have thought that being a postal worker was a particularly tricky occupation, but it, it seems to be. One of the, the reasons that a postman was given early retirement was worn out because you often had people walking long distances every day, often with heavy sacks. In London, you have got the situation where in Victorian times, the atmosphere in London wasn't great anyway, but the sorters and the postmen worked in very cramped, dusty conditions, which was not conducive to good health. And then the telegraphists, whenever they came along, you know, using the Morse code, there was actually a, th a thing called telegraphist wrist, which we would probably call repetitive strain injury these days. It sounds as if you, you found a really interesting piece of social history. Has this inspired you to do other things, do you think, you and your group? Well, yeah, I, I think it has, because, I mean, once we had investigated our own pensioner and got together a life story, the phase of the SLP was for us to understand the medical situation at the time, the, the, sort, of, the sort of diseases that people had, how they would have been treated and diagnosed, and indeed an understanding of the health services at the time. And what we in Ireland found very interesting was the role of the, the workhouse. Now, one of the reasons why it is said why the, the post office provided a pension, because it was part of the civil service and they, there was a feeling they didn't want that their ex-workers would have to be dependent on the workhouse for, for help. And that aspect of social history comes out. And indeed, one of the other postmen I wrote about, the title of the piece was, he died in a place that could never be named because he died in the infirmary of the Belfast Union Workhouse. And for some reason in Belfast, the registrar and indeed the people that did cemeteries never put the workhouse on a death record. They just put its street address, 51 Lisburn Road. An awful lot of people died at 51 Lisburn Road, Belfast. But those of us from here know that 51 Lisburn Road was the Belfast Union Workhouse. Then, as many of those workhouse infirmaries became, today it's the Belfast City Hospital. Some people have remained, myself included, have remained connected with the, the main project. They have this group called the Death Detectives, because obviously the academics are interested to see the people that retired, what happened to them eventually? So they, they ask us as sort of experienced family history folk to go and, and find death records so as they can um, access them for their work. So it sounds to me as if this shared learning project, although you knew little about it when it started, has been a real success and, and suggests to me that other U3As could look at similar sort of projects. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, I think it's been a, an unquestionable success. And I would certainly encourage other U3As to, to get involved in similar projects. Peter Gibson from North Down and Ards U3A in Northern Ireland. This year is the U3A's 40th birthday, with various events being held throughout 2022 to celebrate the occasion. Peter Cliff caught up with the organisation's vice chair, Michaela Moody, to find out what was in store. Well, we've actually 
worked on the same principle as we do for U3A Day itself. And that is that we encourage every U3A to do its own celebration. But because this is quite a big event this year, we have planned a number of activities. The first of which encouraging U3As to hold a picnic in the park on the 1st of June, 2022, which is the day before the four day bank holiday weekend. And the idea is that we don't just celebrate our 40th anniversary, but we ensure that a significant number of U3As make themselves visible across parks in the UK, demonstrating that an active life needs to include fun. And then, of course, we're praying very much for fine weather to encourage people to get out. We are launching a picnic rug so people will be able to make their presence felt in whichever park they choose to celebrate. Because people like help with planning things, we've got a project planner available to help U3As plan the day and an online form that they can complete so that we can identify who's taking part. If you want to get things in the press, you really need to have numbers. And we felt that if we were able to say how many U3As and how many members were actually taking part in this event, it might attract more attention. The idea very much then is, is that local U3As do their own thing, as it were, rather than there being one big, huge national picnic. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> A bit difficult with the, the, the thousand plus U3As and um, over 430,000 members. We, would, uh, we wouldn't even get them into Wembley Stadium, would we? Also in June, we're going to reveal the anniversary quilt. Now, we encourage people to members to create a square for a block. I'm sorry, I'm not a quilter, so block apparently is the technical term. Create a square to demonstrate U3A's positive ageing and positive and active ageing. So those have been judged. The, the 40 winning squares have been chosen and they're being put together as we speak. And we're organising an event to reveal the quilt to U3A members and the public and press in a museum, hopefully in the northwest. But after it's been displayed, then we're planning for it to go to display in locations in Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. So it gets seen across the UK. Um, well, that, that sounds absolutely fantastic. So we, we've got the, the local picnic in the parks. We've got the anniversary quilt. What other ideas have we got? Well, we've got a number of activities associated with things we do regularly. So each year we used to have a science network meeting, which was residential, and that got put into abeyance because of the um, pandemic. So last year we ran three virtual science network meetings. And this, so this year we're going to host, uh, we're going to host another three but the uh, anniversary meeting, we hope, will be open to the public and we're going to hold this in July. And we'd like to attract a key speaker. We've got invitations out because we've got a very large number of people interested, interested in science, particularly in the sort of developments that are happening today. For many, many years, the U3A is being given the privilege of having two afternoon sessions held at the Royal Institution just for U3A members. And so we're actually planning to hold an event on the 31st of October. So to, to restart, if you like, our association with the Royal Institution, we're, we're planning a hybrid event so that we're planning for it to be streamed so that um, far greater number can actually take part. 
You did mention the, the number of members of, of U3A, and U3A is quite a large organisation, but some say it's the world's best kept secret. So how, how would you like to see more people get to know about U3A generally this year? Well, I'm hoping that um, the events we're going to put on will bring us the attention of the press and they'll broadcast it. I mean, some U3As have a terrific track record and they get everything they do reported locally. So we would quite, we would hope, I think, that some of the things we're doing, like the science meeting, and then we're going to have a, a conference on research and shared learning in July. At the moment, when we're we're hedging our bets, as it were, because whilst we're planning for live events, we're also planning for them to be hybrids. Of course, beauty of things like a conference on research and shared learning is that it doesn't matter where you live. If it's online, you can, you can join in. So those are two, two main events. A Scottish initiative, Edinburgh U3A has been working with the University of Stirling in engaging older people from across the UK to tell imagine, real or imagined stories about older, older people taking positive steps to make a better future for themselves and others. So this is, at the moment, members are sending in ideas and they will be translated into short plays and then they will be recorded as videos and produced live in 2023. Michaela Moody, the U3A Vice Chair. And in next month's episode, our quilting correspondent, Peter, will be talking to one of the 40 winners of the quilt competition whose square will end up in the block. And from U3A's 40th anniversary to a Swansea U3A member celebrating his 90th birthday, Ivor Rees did this by delivering his final sermon at the church where he's been a member for 25 years. It marks a long life as a minister in the Welsh Congregational Church. Ivor, who's from a mining community, worked hard to be the first in his family to go to university. And then when everyone expected him to be a teacher, he got the calling for the ministry. But as Sarah Goodall discovered, this was something his family was rather concerned about. I grew up, grew up at the end of the Depression. We were extremely poor. Teaching was a job which brought respectability and was reasonably paid. The ministers they knew were very badly paid and not always respected. So I was giving all that up uh, and it was a great worry to them. How old were you when you made that decision? So I was 20, yes, 20, thereabouts. And I was at university and Suddenly, I felt compelled to change horses in midstream. I left four years later and went to Brecon Theological College for a further three years. So I was 25 when I finished. I had no grant for the last three years. I depended on preaching fees and my father's help. What about work? Were you worried about getting a job after all this was post-war? No, not at all. I'd wanted to go on to Oxford, but the college I wanted to go to at the time was broke. They've got money now. And um, I wasn't the least bit concerned. All the people in my year were fixed up by, by May, and July came and I wasn't the least bit concerned. I had decided by then not to enter the Welsh-speaking ministry, but to go to the English one. 
But an invitation came from Paul Tolbert about his church. And I said to my mother, I may as well go, it may be my last chance. And I came home and said, if they invite me, I'm going there. And on Tuesday, they invited me. And so I went. Was your father's job either? Like most of the other men in my family, he, he worked in the, in the, in the mine. Uh, he was a hollier. He worked with horses until the horses were taken away. And then he was classified as a labourer. So he was bottom of the line. He did well to send you to university. Yes, well, I had a grant in those days. I belonged to the fortunate generation. I feel sorry for people now. But he did help me. He worked overtime. He worked Saturdays and Sundays and often until five or six at night. Get, getting up at about six in the morning, getting, getting an early bus, and in latter days before his health failed, climbing up a steep hill to get to work. Fern Hill, the, the uppermost mine in the Rondra Valley. Wow. And it went down over a thousand feet at great speed. Ivor, you're well established in Port Albert as a minister at the Welsh Congregational Church. In 1966, in October, when the world heard the news of the disaster at Aberfan, when an old slag heap slid down the mountain in heavy rain and buried a primary school, you felt you must go there to help this valley community, like the community you grew up in. What part did you play? Well, uh, we saw the pictures of Aberfan, and I was very distressed as I came from a mining family. So I phoned my friend who was mayor's chaplain in Merthyr uh, and asked what I could do. The result was on the Monday morning, I had to be in Merthyr by, by 8 o'clock. And our main job for the rest of the week was interviewing families who wished their children to be buried in the, the communal grave. We met great, great bravery. And outside, there was, no, there was absolute silence. On, on the Friday morning, we had to go and see a, a member of the local clergy. We walked back over an old coal tip and looked down at a, a row of houses, about 10 of them with five verses outside. So my friend went into one house and I went into the other. I didn't know what to say, but I, was, I went in down to the basement and was given a cup of tea. I asked, have you lost anyone? And the reply was, yes, two children and a grandmother. And I just sat there and all I could say was, I'm sorry. And I left. And for, what, 30, 40 years, I felt guilty until I opened the New Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, who, who said, when he was thinking back of the Jewish captives in Babylon, and I sat where they sat. And I said to myself, that's what I did. Ivor Rees, with his poignant memories, of the Aberfan disaster, talking to Sarah Goodall. And if you know someone in your U3A you'd like to highlight, we'd love to hear from you. The email address is communications at u3a.org.uk.
Sarah, who's also from Swansea U3A, is our newest recruit to the podcast team. She's had several careers on top of being a full-time mum for 10 years, from travelling the world as the features editor of a trade magazine to a communications role with a civil service trade union to working as a press officer for the Metropolitan Police. But it was Sarah's experience as a junior reporter and her general thirst for news that led her to join us. She's been speaking to Ella Watts. That's where I started, Ella, at the age of 17. I was very lucky because I was taken on as a junior reporter um, without any degree. These days, if you want to be a journalist, you have to have a, a degree. And in those days, you didn't. You could just have an, an interview and, and join, and then you would learn on the job, which is what happened. We were the guinea pigs for the National Council for the Proficiency of Journalists um, certification, the first year they ever brought that in. And what newspaper was this? This was the South Wales Evening Post. This is a, was, at that time, uh, had a huge circulation within a large part of South Wales, going quite west um, through into Carmarthenshire as well. We didn't cover South East, that was the South Wales Echo, but um, it was a big, it was e an evening newspaper. The first edition would come out at about lunchtime, but from that point on, it really was breaking news stuff. So this was in Swansea, and what decade was this? Where, where are we going back? This, <laughs> this was in 1966. In fact, I, um, at this time of year, it's very poignant because we remember the Aberfan disaster. And I hadn't been on the paper long when um, that happened. Um, there were three of us junior reporters all started in the same week, two girls and a boy. And we, there, there was a sort of air of tension, and then, then you heard it all go silent. And in those days, to get information, it all came from the ticker tape machine, Royce's machine, you know, it was printed out and the chief sub was standing there holding this and reading it out about this disaster. Unbelievable. And by the time everybody came to and started talking, the junior reporter, the boy reporter said, please send me, please send me. And myself and the other girl were just standing there in floods of tears, thinking, I hope they don't send me. <laughs> that was, that was the an introduction to news and I, I realised, you know, that perhaps hot news was not going to be my speciality. I'm more of a people person. So did they send you to cover the World Cup? Oh, that would have been hopeless. I'd have been, oh, it's the wrong shaped ball. Is there anything that you did report on that really sticks in your mind? What made the most impact on you? I was very involved with amateur dramatics in Swansea as, as a young woman and I ended up getting... Um, a page, a column of my own, a fortnightly column on the art scene. That was great because I was, I was in one amateur dramatic company. All the other reporters would give me their tickets. There's a lot, or there were a lot of amateur op operatic. There was, we had our own repertory company. There were a lot of these things around and I used to report on that. And then I used to take in what, you know, if there was a new exhibition at the art gallery and I was doing that sort of thing. And then I can't remember the year, but I think it might have been 1969. Our repertory theatre, The Grand, it was running out of money. Well, it had run out of money. It was deeply in debt. It, it looked as if it was going to be turned into a bingo hall. And it's a beautiful Edwardian building. It's, um, if, if nothing else, you know, we've, we've had some gorgeous buildings here in Swansea. So a campaign was started by the, all the arts community within Swansea, obviously, you know, to, to oppose this. I knew the management of the theatre very well. In fact, I'd, a couple of times I'd gone in as an amateur 
and been in a crowd scene, you know. So I knew them very well. So I did, I found myself at the centre of the campaign that was uh, formed to try and save the Grand Theatre. So because I worked on the paper and I knew how to make things into news, I got a lot of uh, front page news stories about the, the, the demise of our theatre, etc., the likely demise of it. And it did end up, it was a good result because the Welsh office decided to give a grant of, God, it was something paltry, like £25,000, I think, but of course, in those days. So the grant was saved. The night that it was opened, we had two very, very famous grand people of the arts world come down in a, for a play for the opening night. And I was asked to report on that for the BBC. I had to go up to the, the studio and... So I suppose that stands out as something I reported. I did report on it. I was involved in it. It was a bit like the little red hen. I ran the campaign. I reported on the campaign. Now, if you had your time over again, what is the one event that you would have liked to report on? There were, there were a few riots during the time I worked for the police. There, were, there was the poll tax riots and there was the, the May Day riots in, in Whitehall. And I did find myself, I was there as a press officer, but I did find myself wishing I could be there as a journalist. So any old riots, really. Sarah Goodall showing how journalism has always been in her blood, and we welcome her to the team. We know we have plenty of keen sports enthusiasts in the U3A, with many members looking for activities to keep fit and improve their long-term health. Walking football and cricket have proved a big hit in recent years. What about racket sports? One option gaining popularity is racket ball. Although it's played on a squash court, it's not nearly so demanding, as Terry Wassell from Bradford U3A explained to Joanne Watson. Racket ball is a variation of squash. Both games are played indoors on an enclosed court. And uh, essentially, it's two people hitting the ball against the wall until one of them fails to do so. It's like any other racket and ball sport. Once it's bounced twice, you've lost You've lost the point. It's a very simple racket and ball game. If I was to look at a squash ball, a squash racket, and a racket ball, and a racket ball ball, what differences could I see? Well, the racket ball uh, ball is about the same size as a tennis ball. Uh, it's a little bit smaller, quite a lot bigger than the squash ball, which is very small. I should say the ball is not furry. <laughs> it's, um, it's a plain rubber ball. The racket is, uh, looks a little bit like a tennis racket. It's got a, sh a shorter shaft. That means the contact point in the middle of the racket where you're supposed to hit the ball is much closer to your hand, which makes the coordination of hitting the ball a lot easier. It's a strong racket, of course. So why is this suitable for the average U3A member who perhaps played squash yeah. in their youth and gave away their, their racket to the local jumble sale many years ago. <laughs> yes, squash is a very demanding game. I know from my own squash playing in the past, a lot of squash, you're hitting the ball round about ankle height, certainly below your knee. The ball goes into the side walls in the back corners and more or less dies. You're constantly changing direction, stretching down really low. And it's, it's very demanding in terms of your joints and manoeuvrability and so on and so forth. The big difference with racquetball is the ball is a lot bouncier. Usually you're hitting the ball where it's somewhere between knee and shoulder height. So you haven't got all that stretching and stooping into corners and getting down low. It's much, much 
kinder to joints and muscles. The other thing is because the ball is bouncier, it effectively makes the court smaller because it bounces further off the side walls, further off the back wall. It's, it stays in play a lot better. That effectively makes the court smaller. So really, two of the most physically demanding aspects of squash are eliminated by the, the bouncier ball. The mantra is uh, racquetball is a very easy game to learn, even for a complete beginner. But also, it's quite a difficult game to master. It's much more difficult to play a winning shot. So it's excellent for um, a workout. It's not difficult to get a good rally going and a bit of a sweat on. Whereas if you've tried to play squash from scratch, you spend most of your time picking the ball up off the floor. Now, I know that playing racquetball has helped you with your own health. Explain a bit about uh, how that happened. I suppose I'm an example of this, but there's plenty of examples in the U3A racquetball community of people you know, remaining fit and healthy through racquetball and therefore being in a much better position to cope with some of the inevitable problems of aging uh, and the sorts of conditions that uh, can come along. In my particular case, well, I'm 76 now, so two years ago I had COVID pre-vaccine. I recovered from that relatively quickly. I had a ruptured kidney after a mountain bike accident. I recovered uh, pretty well fully from that. Then I, I was diagnosed with cancer, had surgery and recovered very quickly from that. And most recently, a few months ago, I had a hip replacement operation and I was back within about six, six weeks, not playing the full games of racquetball, but at least back on the court and hitting with my friends and uh, being able to join in again. And according to my various surgeons and doctors and goodness as well, the fact that I carried a good le level of health and fitness into all these various things meant that I, I came through them a lot quicker. The prognosis was uh, always better. There are lots of examples of people in other racquetball groups that have had various problems and they've sailed through them relatively uh, comfortably. Part, uh, mainly because they've gone into these things with a good level of, um, of health and been quite keen to get back to the activity as soon as possible. How popular yeah. has it become? It is a very popular sport. Quite a few of the clubs um, that I travel around have got a much more active racquetball community than they have uh, squash at the moment. I think because it does appeal to a much wider constituency of abilities. If you were to invent a game that was suitable for mixed ability groups, so we're not just talking about different levels of strength or anything, then racquetball would be the sort of game you'd come up with, I think. If you want to learn more, Terry Wassell is the U3A subject advisor for racquetball, and he'd love to hear from you. Just go to our website at u3a.org.uk forward slash subject advice. And as we put our rackets away, that's it for this edition. My thanks to Ella Watts, Peter Cliff, Joanna Watson and Sarah Goodall for the interviews and also to Ella for producing the podcast. Until next time, this is Nick Bailey saying goodbye.